Good morning. Good to see you. Special welcome to those of you who are watching online or listening later via podcast, whether you're near or far, or you're maybe on a warm tropical location on vacation this week. It's, we're glad that you could join us through this medium. Um, you know, I am uh, I'm a Gen Xer, which means that one of my spiritual gifts is sarcasm and skepticism. Uh, which means in particular, in when I get into environments where there's lots of Christian stuff, I'm immediately skeptical and a little bit sarcastic about it. And over the years, I've had some fun with what I like to call teacup verses. Those passages of Scripture that are really, really lovely that we read and we think that's a verse. As I read through an entire chapter, I want to keep and remember. And we want to stick it on a, on a teacup. It's the kind of verses that we would all agree with, that there's nothing controversial in it. It's the kind of verse that we would want to share share with other people because of its great message. I make no fun of that. I make fun of the fact that there's other verses in the scriptures that we would never want to put on a teacup, uh, such as this one, which we're going to be looking at in a couple of weeks. Uh, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Could you imagine putting that on a teacup? And if your neighbor comes over for coffee, you hand that to them and say, I'm a Christian. This is what we're talking about. In these next number of weeks, we're going to be working through the book of First John. There's a temptation in our own belief and in our own theology to kind of say, you know, there's certain things that we really, really like and we're happy to talk about them. But then there's other things that we really don't want to talk about. We're not going to look at those verses. We're not going to look at those matters. And we would rather kind of avoid them if we can. But one of the great things about reading through an entire book of the Bible is oftentimes it will take you to places you didn't really want to go and deal with verses that maybe you wouldn't normally look up and want to read about later, but in their context and with a fuller understanding, they actually come on with with great and profound meaning for all of us. We're going to be looking starting today until Easter. Uh, Pastor John and Saha, our intern, we're going to be teaching through the book of 1 John. And uh, one of the gifts about going through a book like 1 John is that it helps us work with the whole material and deal with all of the themes that come with the passage of Scripture. Um, Today, we're going to start by looking at 1 John chapter 1. And one of the challenges we're going to see as we look at this passage, um, and as we look at this book in particular, is that in John's day, there was a number of people who kind of said about Christianity, there's things that we like, and there's things that we don't like. And there's things, quite frankly, we are going to take the things that we don't like, we're going to remove it and create our own version of Christianity that basically just has the things in it that we like. And that can be really tempting to do, can't it? And maybe in your own mind and heart, you've kind of wrestled with that very issue yourself. And John is writing to these people who are kind of trying to do that. They're trying to create a version of Christianity that they really like and suits them and suits them well. Well, let's look at the book of 1 John and who wrote the book of 1 John. Any guesses? Yeah, who said it? Well, you must be a Greek scholar. There's four books in the New Testament that have John, the name John associated with them. The Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. Most scholars in the early church would testify that the person that wrote the Gospel of John also wrote 1 John. 
And so we're going to be looking at it here today from that perspective. Now, when John wrote this, he was the last living apostle, the last of the 12 disciples who had walked with Jesus, still alive and well. And he was really quite old at this time, probably in his late 80s, maybe even in his early 90s. So the book has a bit of a grandpa-ish feel to it. And the tone is kind of grandfatherly in that he keeps referring to the church as his little children. Not in a derogatory sense, but those people who are in the faith who are younger than him and less mature than him that maybe haven't experienced what he experienced and he wants to see them grow up into maturity. He wants to see them experience what he has experienced in his life. He calls the people his beloved, his beloved ones. And it's truly evident as you read through the gospel of, or through 1 John that John truly does love these people to whom he's writing. But as is most the case, often the case with most of the scriptures, the church was at a critical moment in its history. Uh, Jesus had just barely been resurrected and already there was just different controversies taking over and the church was having splits and schisms and people were fighting with each other. I know it's hard to believe church people fighting with each other. If you think about coming to church and hoping to find happy, harmonious, put together people, then let me just stop right here and burst your bubble. There has never been and there never will be likely on this side of eternity a church that is happy, harmonious, has no problems, and where everybody has their lives put together. The church is always made up of broken, sinful people who are in the, in the process of being transformed and being sanctified and becoming more and more like Jesus. And sometimes we're taking two steps forward and the person behind it, next to us is taking two steps back and we're walking through this journey of faith together very imperfectly. And John wants to speak to some of the issues that are going on in the church, and he doesn't mix any words with them. As much as he loves them, he is very direct. He calls them liars. <laughs> Deceivers, people who walk in darkness, people who hate their sisters and brothers. He calls some of them false prophets, and he calls some of them antichrists, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But other than that, they were doing awesome. So if John was this amped up, what was the issue? What was he so worried about? What was the matter in the church that was causing such disruption? Well, it was the heresy called Gnosticism. And I know you woke up this morning hoping to learn about like a first century Christian heresy. So your dreams are coming true right as we speak. But just give me a minute. Gnosticism was the belief that the world could really be broken into two realities. There was a spiritual reality, elevated, pure, almost secretive quality to it. And then there was everything else that was physical, our bodies, the earth. And these were crude and corrupted and evil. And for these Gnostic believers, they could not imagine how a holy God could come down and occupy sinful, evil flesh and blood. They believed that when Jesus entered the body, he came temporarily, that it was like a costume that he borrowed while he was here, and that just before he died, he exited the costume and left it to die on a cross. And he came here to kind of show us the inside scoop, kind of the secret knowledge about how it is that we could truly know God and be saved. And before you think, okay, thanks for the history lesson, let me just say that the influence of that way of thinking continues to be felt, I think, in the church even today. Let me give you a few quick examples. Uh, there have been at times throughout Christian history where there's been this thought that you're not truly spiritual enough. 
I and my little group that believe exactly what I believe, we really have the inside knowledge about Christianity. And you guys are just unspiritual people. There's also been this idea that anything that's physical is evil has been a part of church thinking for different years. Gnostics would never be environmentalists. Who cares about the environment? God's going to come down someday and burn the whole thing up. Why try to save it? Gnostics would never be care about inner city ministry or caring for the poor or dealing with the sick because those are physical needs. We only deal with spiritual matters. They could not believe that the two could be the same. And I hear it most often when I talk to people about their idea or their vision of heaven. Do you believe that heaven involves Jesus coming back, redeeming the physical earth, giving us physical bodies where we will live for eternity, or is God going to come and destroy this earth, whisk us up away into a spiritual dimension? Gnosticism still impacts our thinking today. And it's with that background, I want us to jump in and read uh, chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2. But let's just jump into 1 John verses 1 to 4 this morning. Starting at page 1898, if you're using the Red Bible in front of you, or you can look it up electronically. 1 John chapter 1. And I love these verses, and we're going to come back to them every week through this series, because they kind of are the foundation of this book. John writes this, no intros, no grace and peace, we're getting right to the matter. That which was from the beginning. Hmm, a book of the Bible that starts talking about in the beginning may ring some bells to us, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and is with His Son, Jesus Christ. And listen to what he says here. We write this to make our joy complete. John says, we have experienced this kind of joy and we want you to have it as well. So John starts writing to these people, to these critics, to these people who are causing dissension in the church. And he argues with them, he lays out his argument, not based on the Bible, because the New Testament was not quite formed at this time. He doesn't go from history. He bases his argument on his own personal experience with Jesus. He uses four statements in it. He first talks about that Jesus was like someone from the beginning. He had this eternal quality to him. That his words and his actions and his presence gave you the sense that he has been from the very beginning of time. There was something eternal about him. And then he talks about what he heard from Jesus. And think about all that the the Apostle John would have heard as he traveled with Jesus for three years. John had listened to lots of great teachers. But nobody spoke with the power that Jesus spoke with. On one hand, his words cut to the core, and at the same time, they breathe new life into him. Then he says what we saw. Now, the Greek word here to describe saw is the same word to talk about going to a theater. You know, when Jesus first came, everybody wasn't quite sure what to do with him, and they were watching him very closely. Everything, like people with front row seats, gazing on him, studying him, trying to figure out. Sure, he talked a good game, but what was he really like? What was he like when he wasn't in front of the crowd? What was he like 
when he was just with us. And John would say that he brought peace to every situation. He loved people and never turned anyone aside. And they'd never seen anybody act like he had acted. And then John uses that interesting line, we laid our hands on him. And of course, because of the controversy that was in the church, this phrase kind of now makes sense to us. Jesus came in human form. He ate, he got hungry, he wept, he was anxious the night before he was crucified, and they murdered him. He died. That God had actually come in human form. And John, ever pastoral, ever pastoral about people's faith, wanting to help them grow up into fullness of the faith, says, we have, want our joy to be complete so that you can have this joy too. John isn't interested in winning an argument or kind of showing these people how much better he is because he's been with Jesus or how much more he knows. No. He says, I've had this experience with Jesus and I want you to know him in the same way that I know him. And I want you to have joy. Let's look at, keep reading it, starting at verse 5 in chapter 1, and I'll read through to the end of verse 2 in chapter 2. And as we read this, to think a little bit about where that joy might come from. Now, I know not all of you like to underline or circle things in your Bible, but if you do, you're going to notice in this next section, I read the, the word if appears six times, and you may want to circle it just to get a sense of how John is structuring his argument. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. I want to take a few minutes and just kind of walk through these statements together, because John uses the word if six times, and there's kind of three groups of two. He issues a uh, a negative statement and then a positive response three times over. Let's look at the first grouping. If we have fellowship with him, we should not walk in darkness. And if we walk in the light, we have fellowship together, and the blood of Christ purifies us from all sin. This is John's first kind of lumping together of these statements. And I love that he describes knowing God as fellowship. This is the language of relationship. The value of having spent time with Jesus and truly getting to know him. And he says, in my experience of having fellowship and walking with him, his light shined so brightly that I became aware of my sin and my need to be purified. Now, let me tell you this. If I go golfing by myself, I can convince myself that I'm pretty good. 
If I'm there, the only one teeing off, the only one shooting on the fairway, the only one putting on the green, I can kind of get through 18 holes and say, you know what? I'm not too bad. I'm better than most people. But if I golf with somebody who's really good, and I have 18 holes, 18 tee shots, 18 fairway shots, 18 times being on the green, trying to putt that stupid little ball into that stupid hole, I realize how horrible I am at golf. And I want to take my clubs and throw them in the lake or set them on fire and drive over them with my car, and I never want to touch them again. John says, I walked with Jesus for three years. I heard what he said. I saw how he treated people. I saw how he had patience and kindness and forgiveness for people. And I'm John, the apostle, the one that Jesus loves. But even I, when I was with him this close, became acutely aware of, being need, of the need to be purified from my sin. And so he says, if we, in the next grouping, if we claim to be without sin, we're deceived. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and will forgive. John says to these believers, if you're trying to figure out what's going on inside of you, do not deceive yourselves and believe that what you have is something that you can fix on your own. What is going on underneath the surface of your life is a sin problem. Now, in 2024... Telling people that they are sinful feels offensive and maybe even old-fashioned and maybe you aren't comfortable with it today. Here's the reality. We talk about sin all the time, but we will never use the word. In fact, we kind of turn ourselves inside out trying to avoid ever admitting that what's wrong with our lives is a sin problem. But we talk about it. We talk about trauma, violence, greed, broken systems that cause harm to people. We will even hear people say that's an evil dictator or that's an evil action or evil injustices that are going on in the world. We have all of this language to talk about it. But what's undercurrent of all of those things? Sin means literally missing the mark. And we can miss the mark intentionally. We can say, God, I know what you want me to do. I shake my fist at you. I will not do it. I'll do my own thing. Or we can miss it accidentally, even unknowingly. But the result is the same. Our fellowship with God is broken. And God wants us to name what's going on in our hearts so that we don't misdiagnose it, so we can get the cure for what's really going on. Then in group three, if we claim to not have sinned, we make God out to be a liar. God who sends his son into the world to redeem us for our sins. And if we say, I'm sorry, I'm good, I don't need that, then we're calling God a liar. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate for the, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, a number of years ago, there was a famous investor, uh, and it came to light that he had swindled all of his clients out of their life savings, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And people lost their entire retirement savings. And it was such a devastating experience that for some people, they took their own life because they were so devastated at having lost everything. So there was allegations, they had an investigation, the investment banker confessed to what he had done. He was charged, he was convicted, and he was sentenced. And he held a press conference after the fact. And I was fascinated at what he said at his press conference. He admitted what he had done. He apologized for what he had done. The police were there with all of the evidence to explain how it had worked. But then he said the most interesting thing. He said this, 
I want you to know this is not who I am. This guy that had embezzled all of these people out of their money, he said, I want you to know this is not who I am. Now, he may have meant that is not consistent with the image I want you to have with me, the brand of me. He may have even meant, I'm, I really, really, really wish this wasn't true about me, but that's not what he said. He said, I want you to know this is not who I am. Now, why would he say that? All of the evidence pointed that it was who he was. He'd done this. He was guilty of it. He had been sentenced for it. But isn't it true for me and for you as well that admitting sometimes who we really are, what's really going on inside of us is the hardest thing to do? That if all of our life and everything we've thought, said, and done became exposed for everybody to see, we would say the same thing. That's not really who I am. I mean, it's part of me, but I, it's not all of me. John says, if we tell God we have not sinned, we've done not, we have not done the wrong thing, then we make him out to be a liar. And we say that we, it's not who we are because we want to know that there's still hope for us. And if everybody knows who we really are, what will happen to us? Who will stand up for us? What will there be for us? That's where John introduces us to these two beautiful images. These two beautiful images. He talks about the righteous advocate and the atoning sacrifice. When John says, when we are ready to admit, this is who I am, this is what I have done, there's incredible news for us. We have this advocate, think maybe lawyer, um, that Jesus is willing to stand up and take your case to claim you as his client, and to defend you before our Heavenly Father. And he's qualified. He's the righteous advocate. He has lived the life that we were meant to live. And he can stand before God and plead our case before us. But he's not just our righteous advocate. He's also our atoning sacrifice. Meaning, when the sentence comes down to us as guilty, because we are who we are, Jesus serves the sentence for us. He's not only our advocate, but he willingly takes the sentence of death so that we can have life, so that we could have fellowship with him. And as John says, it made our joy complete when we experienced this. And we want it for you too. Now, John has two nicknames in the scriptures. Uh, his first one is the coolest one, but it's not really a good one because it's kind of an insult. It's Son of Thunder. Now, maybe that's the name of a heavy metal band, probably, but Jesus and his disciples were traveling through Samaria. They needed to stay for the night, and the Samaritans, who were their cultural enemies, said, no way, move along, you're not staying here. You can't stay in our town, we don't welcome you here, we're kicking you out. And so they had nowhere to stay. And as they were leaving town, John said to Jesus, out of anger and hatred, do you want me to pray to God and ask him to rain down fire on this town and wipe the whole place out? I will, I will. Jesus rebukes him and says no, and they go on to the next town. But John was so angry and so filled with hatred, he was willing to take joy in watching his cultural enemies be destroyed. And he earns this nickname, Son of Thunder. 
His next nickname that he gets later is the one whom Jesus loved. Now, there's an old tradition that John, because he was elderly and he was the last living disciple of Jesus, that all of the churches wanted John to come and speak to them. Come and share a word with us. And so they would call for him and arrange for him to come. But John was so old, people literally had to carry him to their town. And they'd bring him into town. And the people would gather from the church. And they'd stand him up and hold him in place. And he would speak to them. But his message was way shorter than any message you've ever heard from this platform. He would stand up and he would say this to them. Little children, love one another. And one of his leaders one time said to him, John, we've lugged you all the way here. Isn't there anything else that you want to say to these people? And he responded, if that is all that they do, that is enough. So how did John go from being this hot-headed, angry disciple who wanted to see his enemies die to be the kindly old man who wanted to see them filled with joy? He was changed by his experience of Jesus, the advocate, the one who was the atoning sacrifice for him, that as he listened to Jesus and saw him act and experienced his grace in his own life, he was changed. He knew him at that level. And that's God's invitation to each and every one of us, that we would truly know him, that we would experience him in our lives in this kind of way. It's what you're invited to even here this morning. We're going to continue reading through 1 John. We'll continue through chapter 2 next week, but let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, today, as we gather here and just wrestle with this book, Maybe we've had a moment in our own life where we've had to come to grips with who we are. And that there have been some things in our life that we're not proud of. We found ourselves in a situation we never thought we'd be in. And Lord, we're wondering where to go from here. Lord, and into this space you walk to be our advocate. The one who claims us as your own, and defends us before our Heavenly Father, and not just stands in our defense, but also pays in our place the penalty that was due for us, giving us in return life, a new beginning, forgiveness, freedom from shame and guilt. And Lord, this morning, if there is anybody here that has never known you in that way, I pray today that they would experience your grace and mercy flood through their hearts to let them know your great love for them. And Lord, this morning we continue to pray just for our own hearts and pray that you would give us the courage to continue to lean into you and to know you, to experience you firsthand, to experience your words, your actions, and your mercy in our lives. And we pray this in your name.